Welcome to another edition of Cybersecurity Dispatch. This is your host, Andy Anderson. In this episode, Hacking the Pentagon, we talk with Lisa Wiswell, who helped start the Hack the Pentagon program during her time working at the Department of Defense. We talk about the challenging of overcoming institutional resistance to having outsiders hack your systems and the surprising success and praise the program received. We also touch on current issues about vulnerability disclosure and how to create a system where vulnerabilities can be disclosed in a responsible way. Now let's hear from Lisa. Yeah, my name is Lisa Wiswell. I'm a principal at a company called Grimm, and I'm an advisor to HackerOne. Awesome. So, you know, I think it's always interesting to kind of hear how people got into this space. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's, it's not a, it's a, sort of like a career path that's on like, you know, a third grader's list of yes. future careers. Yes. Well, hopefully it's on some third graders list nowadays, but it'll be 20 years before they are doing anything. Yeah, I honestly, this was an accident for me winding up in this community, in this space. I'd been working for my home member of Congress on Capitol Hill. We represented very rural Pennsylvania. And I was focused on a lot of issues like education reform and things like that. And then my boss wound up involved on, he was the chairman of subcommittee that's not called this anymore, but it was the subcommittee on management investigations and oversight on Homeland Security. And we started thinking about cyber finally. And that was a long, wow, that was 12 years ago. And I started becoming really interested in it because of that and had just sort of by happenstance been offered a job basically keeping the trains on track for a couple of program managers at DARPA. And at the time, they were called networking program managers, which just translates to cyber warfare today. So I went over to DARPA thinking this was going to be the cerebral challenge of a lifetime. And it was. And a few years later, we declassified the fact that the Department of Defense did offensive cyber, and then I could start talking about it. (laughs) And when I did and started to not be in the shadows any longer, I had been picked up or been asked to serve my country further by going to work as a political appointee at the Pentagon. So worked in a number of policy-like shops in the Pentagon. And that's when I was able to come up with some innovative program ideas in addition to things that really implicated policy or compliance. Yeah. So your background has been completely on the policy side. Not, not. Did you have any sort of technical background it, before? None. So you can imagine, you know, I was just straight from not just policy, but politics when I went to DARPA, which makes me a really effective bureaucracy hacker as was my last title at the Pentagon. But, you know, at the time, I was just learning just the difference between IPv4 versus IPv6 was crazy for me to try to figure that out technically with zero background. But four years at DARPA, you get almost a PhD in it. <laughs> and, and you're surrounded by some of the most brilliant minds in the world, technically, academically. Yeah, there's something to be said for kind of like approaching things from a, you know, a place that's outside the sort of typical pathway. I mean, if there is a typical pathway yeah. in, in cyber, but you sort of can ask those dumb questions, you're like, stupid question, right? But yeah. often those lead to kind of really interesting things. So what you can talk about kind of from your work at DARPA, what, what were the sort of things that you guys were were kind of pushing and driving from that program? 
Uh, yeah. One of the things that at my time at DARPA, one of the things that became really clear to me and a couple of the program managers there that I'd worked with was that the NSA's mission and the very newly created developed cybercoms missions really should be completely different. Their objectives are different, but a lot of the military leadership that was in you know, directly responsible for both organizations were really clouding those missions, yeah. clouding the people, clouding the skill sets. And it just became like this bigger, you know, just mess of a situation. And so we had said, listen, we have got to do something that will only enable the war fighters, something that's specific for them. That does not mean living in the shadows and doing this foreign intelligence mission. That means just like, you know, when we rolled into Iraq, it's not like we went in all stealthy. We had a American flag at the front, right? And that was our position for what we needed to do as we enabled the DoD war fighters so that if you're using cyber capability for the purposes of war fighting, it doesn't need to be really super sophisticated and stealthy. It needs to get the job done and it it needs to send a message to the world, which generally also means you have to take ownership of it. You have to say, you know, in the packet header, hugs and kisses America, right? So... So that was that was one of the things that we had. The final program I worked on was a, a program called Plan X, and that was kind of the flagship program in cyber at DARPA for a while. And it was around that time when I decided, okay, I'll go do this policy Pentagon thing and try to figure out how to help policymakers really catch up with the realm of technical feasibility for what we can and can't do. And I took that whole vision with me. So when I went to the Pentagon, I was not a popular person trying to fight that fight internally too, but it was important. Yeah. I mean, so much there. I mean, I think, and obviously anything that you feel like you can't talk about for whatever reasons, you're you're welcome to take a pass. But I mean, the sort of idea that the two, that sort of Cybercom and the NSA were, are sort of intricately linked. You know, the argument that I've heard, and I'm probably wrong here, is that you the reason that that is done is because of the capabilities of the two, right? Like, if you separate them, suddenly you're going to lose a lot of the sort of cutting edge, kind of newest stuff, understanding kind of how we break into systems. So how did you guys kind of get comfortable with that, you know, losing that potential touch with yeah. the, uh, the capabilities? It is a valid argument for those that see the missions overlapping as much as they think. I really don't think that the missions overlap that much. Obviously, you know, in order to touch someone's network, you have to have access capabilities to do that. I do think that there are occasionally reasons to reuse, if you will. I don't think that you should rely on the same set of capabilities for everything. Look at the news. <laughs> Look at the last number of years. If it gets rolled up once, it's rolled up everywhere. So you shouldn't rely on these super stealthy, super sophisticated capabilities to do everyone's mission. Yeah. You need that that idea of like redundancy and like diversity. Yeah. Yeah. In all your systems, I this week I also interviewed uh, Dr. Ross from NIST yeah. and thinking about, I don't know if you've seen the new kind of cyber resiliency NIST standards that came out. 
I have. <laughs> you're giving me a knowing. The audience can't see the knowing <laughs> smile that you're giving me. Um, what, what's your sort of thinking on this? I'm um, curious. It's so hard. You've heard me. I think probably anybody who's heard me talk about cyber, even for 20 minutes, has heard me say, the, I think that some of the problem with standards and compliance is yeah. that it strips away a person's sort of need to make smart, informed decisions on their own when it comes to security, when it comes to how being resilient is a hot, is a very personalized thing, right? So you, your network have to figure out how to, you know, survive in very difficult situations. And that's not a one size fits all thing. And I don't think anything in security is. Security sometimes means you're implicating privacy. Some security sometimes means you're implicating safety. Security means a whole lot of things. And you have to just kind of take a step back and look at your organization and determine what, who might be coming after you and why, and then figure out, okay, what is it that I care most about based on what it is that I do? And I do think that it, you know, NIST has a tremendous amount of really hardworking, smart people, and that work is good and necessary, but it doesn't allow people all the time to think creatively like they need to, like real security demands. Yeah. And I think I'm curious, you know, for those of us, like I, like you, don't come from a technical background, but I sort of, and I think it's hard sometimes for people who are not, you know, kind of didn't grow up in, in this space to understand kind of the challenge of literally an ephemeral system that you can't see and necessarily get your hands around. And I, you know, sort of thinking through, you know, a much more tangible space, which is one of the spaces that I know, which is like the construction industry or like or how you build things, right? And there's this really, you know, if, if when you build a building, there's sort of a mix of different professionals, you know, there, there are guidelines yeah. and standards, you know, you need to make sure that you frame using this size wood and, you know, the electricity is done this way, but then there's also the interpretation of it that yeah. both your architects and your engineers go through. And then there's a third step where you've got the actual trades who put it in, who also are experts. And then you've got another step where there's like an inspector who's coming back and throughout the process. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I go to conferences and I hear people like rail against one of those. And it's like, from my perspective, it's like you need them all. And a mature ecosystem has multiple layers of influence and accountability and guidance. Now, that is the smartest analogy I have ever heard <laughs> for this argument, I guess. is I think you're, you're absolutely right. But the problem is almost nothing is a mature ecosystem today, right? Except for, you know, the top five tech firms (laughs) who has a real mature ecosystem. And I worry even more about organizations like IoT vendors that just have no real impetus to do anything right now. And you've got a lot of folks who are, that's terrible. I shouldn't say no, but many do not. And they'll point fingers to anybody else that they can get away with saying, it's your job. It's your responsibility. So in your example, all of those people have very designated roles and responsibilities, and that's clearly codified, right? And in this space, nobody really a lot, at least in most of the space, nobody has roles and responsibilities, which means nobody's actually held accountable unless somebody needs to get fired because of some breach. And that's not codified anywhere. That's just done kind of willy nilly. Yeah. And I wonder, I mean, just to kind of like beat a dead horse with the analogy, whether we're like 
you know, you saw that those changes in that, I mean, one, there's hundreds of years uh, in that sort of space, but it wasn't until you started to see like, you know, the 1906 earthquake or, or other, unfortunately, like until literally people are being hurt yeah. that changes happen. And I, I'm wondering whether we're starting to feel that in cyber, like the public is, it's not only the pain, but also like the sort of public outcry, whether like the, the sort of many news stories, I think this year it's just gone to another level in terms of like public awareness. Yeah, you're right. But we don't have enough people that care yet that we had yeah. election tampering happening. <laughs> and that's something that every U.S. citizen should care about. And until I'm afraid more people get hurt or are killed, it's just not going to be enough to force something major to happen. And I don't, I never suggest that regulation is the end all be all, but yeah. that is one way to start to hold people's feet to the fire in terms of designating roles and responsibilities. So maybe that's what it will take. I hope not. I hope we can just kind of figure this out on our own, but I've been hoping that for 12 years now. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, like the tech industry has like tried to push regulation off. I mean, mm -hmm. quite, quite pointedly, like there was some interesting stuff that the FCC was going to do in the Obama administration that basically got lobbied away, mm -hmm. right? And now GDPR has come in and you know is, is starting to be that that regulation. And if you thought you didn't you didn't like what came out of Congress, like are you really gonna like what comes out of the European Union? Yeah. Right. yeah. Anyways, I'm, I'm now I'm pontificating and this isn't about me. This is you know so walk me through kind of I know one of the one of the things that I really wanted to hit upon was that your hack the Pentagon kind of efforts or program. For those who kind of haven't heard that story, I think they'd love to. Yeah. Well, we hacked the Pentagon. <laughs> we still are. You know, I had gotten to a point where I'd been trying to throw the bowling ball through the window at the Pentagon to shake up the culture a fair amount. And I'd spent a lot of years of my life on the offensive problem set. And I kept thinking, you know, you can use the same set of people for defensive purposes too. And it, you know, I'd thought about this for quite a few years. Microsoft had come out with their bug bounty program and we had been asking a lot of questions about that straight to the Microsoft folks. And it got to a point after, well, the OPM hack happened. And I had a buddy who is a hacker for the government who called me up and said, Lise, you know, my information was just stolen too. Like, can you please just find some kind of legal way for me to jam on some of these other government systems, the kinds of things that implicate my life too. And I'll do it on my weekends, like I, just so that we know where our big problems are. And so when you have a, a bunch of folks like that, that just want to kind of just help, they just want to help. I thought, you know, we really have to figure out how to do this. And he was exactly right when he said, can you find a legal way for me to do this? Because at the time, even though he was a, you know, a Department of Defense contractor, it would have been completely illegal for him to even at the time do, you know, basic scanning of certain systems in the government. And so we spent a lot of time trying to figure out where all of the third rails were and what the, the laws would be so that we could allow people completely unaffiliated with the Department of Defense or the government to hack us. Hack the Pentagon was a, initially a three-week-long bug bounty 
where we allowed 1,187 people completely unaffiliated with the U.S. government to hack us. They signed up to with a username, so the government didn't even know who they were. But they signed up and told us, they committed to us, that they would follow our instructions to a T. And they did. And that was the most shocking part for me. I thought for sure we would have a couple of incidents where folks would try to do something nefarious. And they didn't. And the what was interesting, being that I was on the inside trying to be the person to actually get seniors across the government okay with the fact that we were going to let people who we didn't know <laughs> hack us, we had to really kind of do a lot of PR management <laughs> in some ways. And I had to do a lot of promising that I was going to make this as controlled as possible, given the parameters. And a lot of people were still really nervous. And we're talking a lot of people with a lot of stars on their shoulders. Yeah. We're really nervous. <laughs> but afterwards, after we, you know, we did a lot of forensics, I think one of the things that I did very well in terms of making this a successful ongoing program is I wrote the hell out of everything afterwards. I would write after action reports, I would write a final report and I would push the information out as broadly as I could to make everybody in the government feel very comfortable about it. And they did. And now it's an ongoing thing. We just announced that hack the defense travel system is going to happen. We hacked the army. We hacked the air force twice. It's, it's, It's cool because we've got a good cadre of of researchers across the globe who are looking for weaknesses in DOD systems, telling us what they are, and providing recommendations on us to us on how to fix them. And so when you do that, when you when you outsource basically two-thirds of the problem, right? Discovery, disclosure, and remediation are the three parts of the vulnerability life cycle. When you outsource two of those parts and you just let your workforce focus on the remediation phase, mm-hmm. suddenly you go from having vulnerabilities for months or years in some case, years from the time that you've known about the vulnerability to in cases days, weeks is the long time. I mean, that's a that's a really, really empowering thing. So it's made a big, big security impact. The Secretary of Defense at the time, Ash Carter, said that we saved easily a million dollars just by doing the first bug bounty pilot. So there's a there's been a lot of obvious potential that we continue I say we, I'm sorry, the US government. I'm no longer with the government. Keep trying to push the the ball forward on and I'm really proud for that. Yeah, and I think you know when when I heard you you tell the story, you kind of talked about what the what it was like before that, right? Before there was a, a sort of an official program, and you know, I think it was interesting, right? Like, what was it like? You know, I think the the idea that the sort of the community of sort of security researchers and hacker, right? Like in in the sort of general media hacker is seen as like a, you know, always a nefarious kind of criminal potential. <laughs> always individual. wearing that black hoodie, too. Right. Like yeah, every always time. same picture. Green coat, blowing the their heads. We need a new it's picture, funny. right? <laughs> so we'll talk about what it was like before that program was enacted. You know, one of the things that I think is most, I just don't even know how this could be, but it's most interesting for me is that within the Department of Defense, Folks really didn't understand that the kind of skills that you need or the people that you need to do the things that you expect the NSA and Cybercom to do, those are hackers. They're hacking. (laughs) That's what they're doing. And so the people 
that are doing that, you know, contractors a lot of time are the same people that are going to be able to help you if you allow them to participate in this wider map or the skill sets, the same skill sets that they have, which are, you know, a finite amount of people across the globe. You can get more of that, which means you can look at more things. People really didn't even put that into perspective because as you said, the, the word hacker has always been a really bad thing. Which is why we called them security researchers <laughs> for quite a while. Forget that's that's one of that's one of my hacks, right? Just call it something else. They did have a really bad rap for a long time. And if I were a hacker, I wouldn't want to do any work with the government, given how badly they've been demonized for as long as they have. We were getting information, and in fact, you can just Google it and see all kinds of stuff there. People would put cease and desist notices that they were issued from some lawyer at the NSA because they'd done some port scanning of DOD's IP space. And that's a, that's like, I can't even imagine how terrified I would be, you know, violating the computer fraud and abuse act, of course, is a felony. And so a lot of people have done some hard prison time for doing that kind of stuff. So we just needed to really fix that. We needed to be done with that. We needed to make it not illegal by either de facto or not. And we needed to make sure that people could continue to do what it is that they do, whether it's part of their everyday job or part of, you know, one of their hobbies. But the problem was, and this is why it took a while, a lot longer to set up than most folks would have you believe it would take a bug bounty to set up, at least at the Department of Defense, is because people honestly, you know, and this isn't because they're bad people, obviously, but a lot of senior leaders really didn't understand how insecure we were. And this is after the OPM hack and all kinds of DOD hacks that they just didn't really quite understand. And so we'd had I said, okay, let's do this. We'll have a couple of our own red teams go against our systems for a few weeks before we open it to hackers. Will that make you feel better? At least then we'll have eyes on where we know our weaknesses are. And these are our best people. Internal workforce, that is. And when Hack the Pentagon opened, we had somebody submit a vulnerability within 13 minutes that wasn't one of the ones that was found in a red team, right? And so at that moment, people, well, across the next few weeks, people really started to understand that security through obscurity does not work. You cannot just tell the world that you're secure because you still aren't. And so that was a big cultural change that we pushed away from. And fresh eyes are really the key when it comes to finding weaknesses. If you have the same set of folks looking at all kinds of things all of the time internally without bringing in fresh blood and fresh eyes, it'd be like... You know, if you were looking at a term paper in college for the ninth time, you would have missed every typo after the second time you read it. But if you gave it to your buddy, he'd find all of the typos. And it's the same concept. And when you break it down that way, and then you show them some numbers too, like, hey, we found 138 actionable vulnerabilities during this three-week program that our people were then able to go fix. That's a really empowering thing. And, And that has created a big cultural shift, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, I think to talk about sort of, you know, we talked about a maturing industry, right? And any industry that's sort of doing unique research or sort of pushing 
the sort of knowledge base forward has some sort of process where it is like peer reviewed and open and right. I mean, I think about sort yeah. of medical research and those sorts of things where, you know, I'm sure it's a scary moment when you, you send out that study and then suddenly all your peers come in, and, right? And it, mm-hmm. it, but you do, that is how sort of things mm-hmm. move forward. But I think there's the, that second piece, right? Which is, I think, really interesting is like changing the culture of how you respond to things, right? Like the very fact that it is, you know, the sunshine cures a lot of ills mm-hmm. and suddenly the idea that there is sort of sunshine on these issues, you can no longer as an organization, as an individual sort of delude yourself into believing that, hey, uh, no, 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 we're fine. This isn't a big deal. Yeah. 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 Certainly as an organization, that's gone. And I think that's starting to be pulled back across the U.S. government as well, and across many governments, right? The U.S., of course, started this whole force forward, but the plenty of other governments are following suit, which is exciting. There are certainly, there's always going to be individuals who say, don't, you know, don't worry, I got this, we're cool, my people are great. You know, to those folks, all I can say is, listen, the problem is until, for the foreseeable future, people, human beings are the ones that are developing code, which means they are going to have flaws. It's just the way it is. And it doesn't mean that anybody's doing anything maliciously. It's just the way it is. And so unless you find different unique ways to make sure that you're minimizing your risk based on that, and most importantly, you're fixing the weaknesses, the vulnerabilities that you know about in a very short time frame instead of just putting it on the shelf and saying, eh, just because I know about it doesn't mean anybody else does. And they're not going to, nobody's going to bother to to use this vulnerability. So long as you do that, then it's definitely going to, your your organization is going to be more secure because of it. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the pure complexity, right, of systems is just like to, I think whether humans create it or machines create it, right, it's going to be, there's just so much you know, it, 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 I, I think you're starting to reach a point where it's almost organic yeah. in terms of its like complexity. It's just we can't, you know, the, the, the classic joke, like a butterfly like flaps its wings in, in Beijing and that affects the weather here in New York. It's like it's that we may be beginning. In a, and I think if you start to look at those diagrams of like the number of IoT devices that are just exploding, there is that level of complexity. And you have multiple actors you know, at all different sort of levels of sophistication, acting in different ways with different motivations and sometimes, you know, uncertain, unclear what those are. So let's talk a little bit more about disclosures, right? Like thinking through that, uh, what we were talking about before we started the recording, you know, that how do you think about the, you know, the challenges that are in a lot of the devices that are, we're increasingly like surrounding ourselves with and depending on. So I, the Congress has done us some us meaning our community some favors in though they are not able to pass much by legislation these days they are still helping kind of shine a light on certain big issues obviously IoT devices and now election equipment are two really big thrusts and I've kind of lumped them all under this this idea of IoT I think anytime you deal with systems in which you're dealing with sort of the intersection of hardware and software. That place, that seam, is the place where most vulnerabilities lie. Yeah. And 
you know, in those two examples, not that all IoT, you know, vendors are without great security plans, but most of them are because that's not what they necessarily do. I think that they really need to take a hard look, particularly the IoT vendors that offer devices for private citizens like myself to go purchase that might implicate privacy and or safety. And if that's the case, then we need to find a better way to do what it is that they're doing today. Because if we don't start to take security more seriously, obviously, perhaps dire things will happen. Medical IT devices, of course, is a really great example of that. Automotive, every single widget in a car these days. Those are the kinds of things where you're putting lives at jeopardy, not just you know, data breaches and things, ransomware and, you know, things that are bad, but they don't, when you get to a point where it could affect a life, then you need to really stop and take a real hard look. And I do think that a vulnerability disclosure policy is a tremendous way to at least have what I call a see something, say something, right? So if I was a researcher who was trying to figure out if I wanted to buy, you know, iWatch or a Fitbit, maybe I would want to actually test the security of both or at least have enough information to understand the privacy implications of either before I bought that device. There's a lot of things that are going to evolve over the next couple of years that allow consumers to make better decisions on things like that, I think. But the first step is 100% if there are vulnerabilities in these devices, and it's not even worth saying if, because there are vulnerabilities in these devices, vendors should have some way of knowing about that from the security researcher community. Yeah. And, you know, obviously your experience in this space is much more extensive than mine. So let's say, you know, I'm a security researcher and I find a vulnerability in a a smartwatch or, you know, some sort of device. Can I disclose that publicly or do I risk like legal action from the company if I do that? Is there... Walk me through that sort of situation and how that works from a legal perspective because it's not something that I really thought about. Right. So sometimes it's murky, right? Because Computer Fraud and Abuse Act still exists, as do other pieces of legislation. And unauthorized access is still a felony, right? So Even for like a normal, like whatever... So, okay, if you were to... Like I bought that, I bought that... Uh, watch is that considered illegal? Unauthorized access is still not permitted. However, but, but if, it, you, if it's a product that I own, that you own, well, do you own the code? Interesting, right? So it is. It's all very the who owns what is one of the things that I I'm just grateful I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> right? Because that's those are the kinds of things that would drive me insane. Yeah. It's kind of a circle of. of doom depends on different states and localities, not to mention federal, of course. One of the ways that companies have made this easier for researchers is instead of making it public, right? So instead of saying, tweeting to the world, yo, I found this vulnerability, 
somebody. That is something you definitely don't want, whether you're the researcher right. or the vendor. You don't want to do that. Yeah. So vulnerability disclosure policies are a really great way to avoid that. It still allows that researcher a legal avenue just to tell the vendor, hey, I found this vulnerability. Sort of a safe harbor exactly. system. Great, yeah. great. Yes, a great analogy for it. And then the company, because they have that policy, has authorized that individual to do the testing activities to find that. Yeah, although, you know, whether it happens or not, you, you would think you would love for the company to do the right thing, right? But we are also realists and, and students of history, at least I am. And so, you know, also the ability for that researcher to disclose it in a reasonable time period if he feels like the company is not being responsive. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of a normal practice that a lot of organizations have done in the past. At my, at my company, Grim, we do this thing called Not Quite O'Day Fridays, where we'll have found a vulnerability and we'll discuss what it was, how it worked, how we found it. And that's a great, frankly, it's a great recruiting mechanism. It's a great tool for fellow researchers across the globe to, to look at and, and learn something from. But we always work with the vendor first. First, and we try really hard to get that information to them. We're, you know, we're a pen test type of firm. So it's not like, you know, we're, this is not extortion, right? We're not trying to yeah. say, hey, give us all the monies here, take this. It's completely legal and ethical, but it still is. There's always going to be issues like that if a company is not willing to even listen to you to when you try to tell them, you've got this vulnerability. It's really important to me that you fix it. I'm sure it's important to your other users as well. Here's what it is. Happy to help you in any way if you need it. I mean, I think even the situation with like the major well, the major sort of vulnerabilities in chipsets, you know, Meltdown and Spectrum, you know, that those came out, you could completely understand a company basically like wanting to keep those private, right? Sure. And not ever wanting to disclose them, right? And there's sure. there's certainly like the public, there's the court of public opinion, right? And so you may win there, but if you had, I would not want to be getting sued for by Intel, right? Those have some very, very deep pockets and they yeah. could put me kind of in litigious hell yeah, for, for a long, long time, time. Right? Long, long time. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the ways that a company could minimize that risk, though, is just kind of a good feedback loop with the researcher. Yeah. In my experience, so the Hack the Pentagon pilot was so successful, we were able to launch a DOD-wide vulnerability disclosure policy. We've had thousands of vulnerabilities submitted to us, thousands, yeah. and our people have been able to fix them. Think of how empowering that is. And we don't pay those folks a cent for it. It's not incentivized. It's just there as a, hey, if you have information about a DOD vulnerability, please submit it here. Thank yeah. you very much. But we wind up communicating with those researchers a lot. Yeah. And so the researchers are very understanding if something's taking longer to fix than what they expected. Now, it's not a chip that two-thirds of the world relies on or anything, but obviously there's some work that would need to be done for things like that that are kind of one-off edge cases. But so long as normal firms with normal vulnerability issues are kind of constantly providing feedback to the researcher and not making them feel as though they were, you know, we don't, we don't even take this seriously, kid. Thanks so much. Then you're yeah. in good shape. Yeah. 
you know, where do you sort of see that the, the sort of regulate, if there is a regulatory sort of like oversight happening, at least in the U.S., would that, you know, I'd be curious, sort of your experience kind of hacking bureaucracy, what agency do you see that coming out of? Oh, like, yeah. is that con- consumer protection? I think bureau? so. Like, I do. I think so. I think in part because IoT is the thing that most people think about now when they think about cybersecurity risk, because it's the thing that implicates everyday citizens. Yeah. And so if you if you can give your toaster an IP address, that's a you know, that's kind of a scary thing. And so consumer protection probably is the right place for it. There's going to, there's going to be a like lot of FCC work. though is getting pretty involved because it's now yeah. well, anytime it's spectrum or like mm-hmm. essentially network communication, right? The FCC starts to step in. That's right. I think that there's, and this happens with everything when it's the first or when it's an initial go at trying to no kidding, come up with some kind of standards and uh, whether that's regulation or not, there will be a lot of stakeholders initially, a lot of stakeholders. And you're already starting to see sort of the effects left of that, where you have members of Congress from every walk of life that is suddenly very interested in these spaces from every state all over the place. And so there will be many, many stakeholders. And I think in the end, it will shake out and it will very likely because it, it this all boils down to protecting consumers. That's very likely where this will Although, do they, they have any money? Well, that's you know, does anybody right now? <laughs> like that's we're going to have to give it to the Department of Defense just because there's budget. <laughs> <things in person. laughs> we'll just be taking all our IoT devices and dropping off in the middle of the Pentagon. Like, what is in the middle, right in that courtyard? In the hot dog stand. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Anyways, thank you so much. This is fascinating, really interesting, touched upon a lot of good stuff. So, well, thank you. It's super fun. 